Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 1 through 13 and 18 through 28. In honor of God and his holy word, please stand as we read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other brother, or any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is, this you dream, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The word of the Lord. We're starting to consider the story of Joseph and how we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in the story of Joseph. Joseph starts not really with good news, but with something very bad happening. And when we start to think about bad things happening in a biblical story or bad things happening in our own lives, we are pressed with the question, if 
if God is in control, if we confess that he's sovereign in some way, but that he allows terrible things to occur, how good and loving is he or how powerful is he? Right? The bad things that we see happening in this world all around us, the bad things that happen to us in our life cause us to question the good, good and loving presence of God. And certainly that comes to the fore with what we've just heard or just read in terms of what happens to Joseph. One of the things I want us to consider as we begin to press into the Joseph story is the notion of perspective. Have you ever stopped to think how radically perspective affects how a situation is evaluated? Consider a child for a moment. child, perhaps, that's being told to take a nap. And the child revolts. The child of seven who doesn't want to take a nap but is very tired revolts against that notion. And I've told my children to take a nap when they're tired and in tears and in anguish. They tell me that I am not a good father and that I don't love them even as they uh, have to retreat to the room. I'll take the same child fast forward a little bit. Right? Home from college, exhausted from a semester. You say, hey, why don't you take a nap? They say, huh, that's not a bad idea. I think I'm going to go take a nap. You fast forward a little bit more to the same, the same person, now 40, with children. He's been playing with the kids and working all day. Got mowed the lawn Saturday morning. Wife says, why don't you take a nap? And he says, sweet, sweet grace, yes, I will. All right, same person, same activity, completely different perspective. Completely different opinion. From the opinion or evaluation of the seven-year-old, evil. You are against me. You are not for me. From the perspective of the college student, a gift. From the perspective of an adult father, the sweetness of grace. Could it be, perhaps, that there are ways in which some things that we may evaluate to be evil or not good, we see from a seven-year-old perspective? But from God's perspective, it's actually sweet grace. This is one of the ideas that we need to wrestle with as we begin to consider the story of Joseph. And what the story of Joseph is going to show us is indeed that is true. And if we really believe it, if we really trust in God's goodness and love, even in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, you will ultimately be unshakable. Because your confidence will exist in something that is stronger than any circumstance that befalls you. So do you want to be unshakable? All right. Let's consider the story of Joseph this morning for this opening. I want to consider that sin runs deep. Firstly, two, that grace runs deeper. And three, that suffering is redemptive. Sin runs deep, grace runs deeper, and suffering is redemptive. So sin runs deep. We see at the opening that this is a family with certain problems. Here we are studying the last of the patriarchs, Jacob. We, think, we would think that there's perhaps a certain sense of holiness to the family. But very quickly we read in verse 3 that Jacob loves Joseph more than his other sons. There are at least 11 sons at this point, perhaps 12. It's a little bit unclear whether Rachel has given birth to Benjamin, the last of the 12 sons yet, and she'll die in that childbirth. It's a little bit unclear if that has occurred yet or not. Joseph is, is almost the youngest or the youngest at this current time. And Jacob's love is said to be uh, placed upon him in a way 
that scandalizes the brothers. Not only that, but he's expressed his love in a very tangible way by buying him a coat of many colors we have often translated in English. It's actually hard to translate. But the one thing that you do get the gist of is that it's a very expensive coat. Jacob has lavished an exceptional sum of money on one particular son at the expense of the others. Now, we see Jacob being, showing favoritism. And if you know the story of uh, the patriarchs, in one sense, you should, you should say, really? Have you not suffered enough from parents showing favoritism that you're going to do it too? And on the other hand, we should say, I'm not surprised because you've been, you've been raised in this venue. Right? If we remind ourselves even briefly of the story that becomes before, Isaac and Rebekah are Jacob's parents. And Isaac favored Esau and placed his love upon him at the expense of Jacob. And in response, Rebekah, the mother, favored Jacob, completely estranging the two sons so that Jacob would steal Esau's birthright and go on the run for a number of years. And then Jacob, living with his uncle, decides to place all of his love, probably much of, of the love that he, you know, not having received love, been loved by his father, he decides that his life, his rescue will be found in a woman. And his eyes delight on Rachel. Now, as the story goes, he also has to marry Rachel's older sister, Leah. The text will tell us, the story tells us that Jacob loved Rachel and Leah he hated. Now, when we translate that word into hate, and it's not, sometimes it can mean hate. There it probably simply means that he, he didn't have love for Leah, where he had great love for Rachel. So Jacob, the product of favoritism, then showed favoritism amongst his wives. And now, having 11 sons, shows favoritism towards the youngest son of his favorite wife. Right? Rachel has died or is uh, about to leave this earth. And in that, Joseph is, or Jacob is taking his affection that he has for Rachel and placing it upon the eldest son born to Rachel, which is Joseph. And this, of course, this favoritism breeds dysfunction. How does it affect the family? Well, if we consider Joseph, notice in verse 2, Joseph returns, he's been out shepherding with some of his other brothers, sons of a different mother, and he comes back in, he says, you know what, Dad, I've got a bad report. I need to tattle on my brothers and what they did out in the field. Now, what's interesting here is the Hebrew suggests that what he's saying isn't entirely true. The bad report that he's giving is, uh, is fictionalized to some extent, probably to further scandalize his brothers in his father's eyes. And so you have Joseph, an individual who's willing to uh, make up stories about his brothers to further place himself in the affection of his father and to put his brothers in trouble. And you see in the very beginning that his brothers hate him. Right? This is the situation in the family. And you would think that a person who is uh, obviously receiving undue affection from his father and totally estranged from his other ten brothers... If that person were to receive a dream that suggests that he will be either even further honored amongst the family, that he might keep it to himself. But not so Joseph. Joseph says, hey, brothers, hear this dream that I've had. 
Let me tell you about what's going to happen in my future and what's going to happen in your future. The brothers hate him even more. And so you really think a normal person now would kind of, okay, I'm going to put this on the back burner. Joseph is not a nice person. He has another dream, and he does the same thing again and causes so much consternation that by verse 10, even Jacob, the father who loves him more than the other brothers, rebukes him. He says, are you serious? Are you telling us that I'm going to bow down, that your brothers are going to bow down to you in deference, that we're going to honor you as ruler over us? Would you stop it? You're causing grief. Joseph is, uh, as many commentators like to refer to him, a spoiled brat. And he's trying to ride that, right? Hating his brothers because they don't love him. Rubbing in and further causing contempt within the family. And the author has gone to great lengths to uh, emphasize how much the brothers hate Joseph. In verses 4, 5, and 8, what do you get? Hate, hate, and hate. The brothers have no bandwidth anymore for tolerating Joseph. And in verse 11, you see that they are jealous of the favor he has received and, of course, of the coat that he has received. And so what do we, what do we learn from this first point? Sin runs deep. First of all, we see a picture of a very dysfunctional family, and it should teach us at least one thing in sense of how do we read the Scriptures? All too often, we go to the Scriptures and we read about someone who's highlighted in the story and we say, this person is an exemplar. There's someone who is a model for us and we should follow after that person. Friends, how how in the world could you come to that conclusion given this picture of Joseph? There's nothing worth copying here. He's really, uh, he's spoiled, he's immature, he's causing great frustration. The Bible is not a, a book that simply tells you how to behave. There's a much greater story at work here, which is that God is effecting a rescue of his people that is much more expansive than simply teaching someone how to act in a proper manner. And secondly, in this, we should, we should recognize that even from the earliest of times in the story of humanity, your story matters very much. Right? Joseph is the product of the things that have been done to him, not simply of what he has done. You are the product of what has been done to you, not simply what you have done. In fact, probably your greatest wounds in your life are relational wounds, wounds that you've received from the outside. Now, the odd thing is that from those relational wounds, we so often think, that, oh, we can just simply move forward and fix those wounds, even though they came relationally, we can fix them ourselves. And so you get a pretty distinct picture of how, how people in Rockwall and the surrounding area take up the wounds of their past. I see someone say, well, yes, I'm starting to think about how I may have been hurt in the past. I'm going to start a project. Or, yes, I probably need to think about that, but... If I just occupy myself more and more with my kids, I don't need to be distracted by that. I can dissolve myself into my children. Or perhaps some decide to take matters into their own hands. I'm going to get a book that describes and approaches this dysfunction, and I'll learn how to fix myself through some self-help way. 
And the whole notion neglects the very basic principle that you were wounded right, relationally. And a relational wound often takes relationship to heal it. That's one of the reasons that God creates a body, that we need one another. And we need to be invested in such a way that people can see us and people can speak to our hurts and people can say, yeah, I don't really think that's your problem. Your problem actually is over here or you've deceived yourself. A community that speaks honestly to one another. It's why we need community groups. It's why we need men's night on Wednesday night. It's why we need venues in which the women gather. But those relationships, don't be fooled, as important as they are, are only an echo of your relationship with God. And that's where healing comes. Which is why it's so odd to me that our hearts are so broken and twisted that often we, we approach our relationship with God and then we think solely of what do I need to think and what do I need to think or do. And those things aren't really necessarily related to the actual relationship. To drawing near to him and to fellowship with him, fellowshipping with him, to hearing from him in his word, to praying, to voicing your pain and your anguish and your frustration to him. That's what relationship with God looks like. Not simply going and learning something that you can recite or going and doing something that you think is obedience, but actually being drawn to him in love. And the last thing we might observe at this last, uh, last thing of this first point is that, uh, I don't know about you, but as much as I know that I mess up my kids, and as much as I know that families are terribly uh, dysfunctional, the story actually gives me hope, right? Because most of you, maybe there's an exception, but as far as I know, right, none of you actually are trying to kill each other, literally, right? That's what's happening in this family. The brothers will decide to literally execute a termination plan for Joseph. That's pretty dysfunctional. That exceeds most of the dysfunction in this room. And this is the patriarch of Israel. Right? This, is, this is the family that God has chosen to work through. They're all adults. They're all absolutely broken. But this isn't the end of the story. And the story actually ends quite beautifully. So it's never too late. Never too late. For those of you who are older parents and have children that you worry over, if your parents my age, I already worry over my kids. I think, man, have, it's, have I already messed them up too much? No. It's never too late for God's grace. So it's this grace that we now turn to that as deep as sin runs, which it runs very deep, right, in the sense of the family, we see the sin being handed down. Sin and grace tends to run through families. But grace runs deeper. Right? And that's what runs in the family of God. And we see this grace running deeper in these odd dreams that Joseph has. First of all, he dreams of sheaves of wheat, which is a little bit peculiar because they're shepherds. It's not really their thing. But the sheaves of wheat, the 11, uh, bow down uh, to Joseph. His sheaf of wheat is standing and being worshipped by the other sheaves. And, of course, the message is not that difficult to interpret. Joseph is saying there's a day coming where you will bow down in deference to me. Now, this is particularly scandalous because Joseph's the youngest son. And that's not the way things work in ancient times. The eldest son is the one who receives everything. He inherits everything, and all of the younger brothers are attached to him for their entire livelihood. Right? They come to rule the household and the estate. 
And so it's absurd that Joseph is suggesting you're going to bow down to me. Well, he's not done yet. He goes on to dream two. He says, uh, this time it's even more peculiar because it's the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, peculiar one, because he's suggesting that Jacob himself will bow down in deference to, uh, to Joseph. But two, that the celestial bodies are bowing down and worshiping. That nowhere in Scripture do the celestial bodies worship anything but God. And so there's a, there's a funny aspect to this dream that you say, yes, I kind of see how this is fulfilled in Joseph, but this couldn't actually fully be fulfilled in Joseph. It would take something much greater than Joseph for it to actually be fulfilled. And so the dreams begin to reveal Joseph's story, but of course they reveal the gospel in a more significant way. Now, this mysterious grace unfolds in uh, this greatest of chapters because as you enter the chapter, Jacob has arrived in Canaan, right? The dispute with Esau is settled. The tension between Abraham and Lot has been put to rest, and you actually enter chapter 37 thinking, oh, here we are. The promises to Abraham are going to be fulfilled. All is well and good. Let's wrap this story up. Then it says, these are the generations of Jacob, and it does another odd thing, which is usually after an introduction of generations, you get generations, but you don't get generations here. You just get Joseph. Usually you get, you know, Jacob begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and here it's all Joseph, which is incredibly odd because Joseph isn't a patriarch, right? It's this, nobody says, our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it's just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph is not in the genealogical line of Jesus. And yet Joseph will receive more attention in the book of Genesis than any other figure. Why does he get so much attention? Why is the story changing gears and receiving such, uh, such time in the book of Genesis? Well, essentially God is, is expanding his plan. The story, which to this point has basically been to settle one little family and to be fulfill promises to one particular individual, now begins to see the scope that the problem is much larger and the solution will need to be greater. And so Joseph is being prepared to be salvation uh, in the midst of the famine that is coming upon the whole land. And he will save not only his father and his brothers, but he's going to save all of Egypt. He's going to save the known world right at the time of this story in the midst of this famine. And so these dreams are given. Is God's grace. God's saying, I'm taking the story in a different direction. And you would think that there would be a certain posture of humility in understanding or receiving dreams like this. A certain posture of, I wonder what God is up to if he's giving these kinds of visions. But instead, you see two very different reactions uh, between Joseph and the brothers. What's Joseph's reaction? Joseph says, I get these dreams. I'm going to be front and center. This is what I've known. And finally, all of you are going to fall in line with Dad, who's loved me best. You're all going to be forced to love me best. I know exactly what God is up to, and he is so on the right track. But for the brothers, they hear the dreams, and what do they say? Well, that's not how the story can go. That's wrong. Nope, you're not the firstborn, and we don't like you, and so we reject these dreams out of hand. 
God's revelation coming to the fore. And on the one hand, you have someone being so arrogant as to say, oh, I know exactly what God is up to in the midst of this revelation. And on the other hand, you have people who are so, um, so hateful and so filled with contempt and so lacking any kind of trust that they say, no, God can't be up to that. We reject that. It calls us to a certain uh, confidence and naivety when it comes to experiencing God's revelation, right? God is saying, I'm going to do something that will bring rescue, that will be blessing. And so there can be a confidence in that revelation. But there also has to be a naivete for Joseph. Joseph can't presume that he knows how this is going to unfold, and he certainly can't presume it's going to unfold exactly as he wants it to unfold. How many of us dream, say, God, if you just did it this way, if you would just, I know your promises, and I expect you to kind of fulfill them in this fashion. And in that, you play Joseph. And on the other side, you have, of course, the brothers who have no willingness to say, well, God may be up to something that we don't expect. We don't like Joseph, but maybe he's going to honor him in some way. They're unwilling to express a certain naivete to be willing to be open to what God may be doing in the midst of this revelation. And so we have to remind ourselves that God's grace is very, yes, it runs deeper, and it's so profoundly mysterious. It's so mysterious that the grace is about to unfold with Joseph being thrown into a pit for dead. That's not a story we would write. It's certainly not a story Joseph would write. It's certainly not how he thought the visions or the dreams were going to be fulfilled, but that's how the story goes. And so the story at the outset reminds us that suffering is redemptive. What happened to Joseph? Nothing good. Uh, you know, you wonder, you have to wonder, what kind of father was Jacob? Right? He knows the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. He's outnumbered 11 to 1. And he says, why don't you go out into the wilderness and visit your brothers while they're pasturing the sheep? You read the story, and you, part of it says, do you not know what's going to happen? Right? At the very best, he's going to get a beating. Right? And at the worst, who knows? And yet, Jacob sends him out to visit his brothers and to go check on them. And of course, as they see him, their response is, here comes the dreamer. Right? The one who thinks so much of himself and God's plan for him. In verse 23, they strip him of his coat, which is the language that you would use of skinning an animal. Right, the language here that's being used in 23, 24, 25 is very violent. Uh, they're being very aggressive with him. There is no, uh, no mercy. Uh, they took him, they threw him into uh, a pit. Uh, and then in, later on, when the brothers come back, later on in Egypt, it's in 42, 21, you realize that uh, J Joseph during this time is pleading. He's, uh, he's begging for his life. And the brothers admit later on in 42 that they wouldn't listen to him, that they ignored his pleading. In fact, even as they hear his pleading, they sit down to eat. And so you read a story like this, and you just for a moment put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and say, is God good? Right? How could Joseph confess that at that time? And what is your pit? Where has God thrown you? At what point in your life have you said, God, how could you possibly do this? 
this shouldn't be part of my story. It doesn't seem like it's part of your promises. And yet, with, the, with some of the benefit of, of hindsight, right, and knowing the story, we know that this is the beginning of God's rescue, not only of those who will suffer the famine, but he's rescuing Joseph and his brothers, right? Joseph is a really unpleasant individual at this point. What would happen if God simply moved him directly to authority in Egypt? It would be terrible. He would see everyone suffer under his thumb. And he would be so filled with pride and arrogance that he would want everyone to bow to him and he would take advantage at every turn. The brothers now are in no place to ever reconcile to Joseph, but down the road they are going to be in a place to reconcile with Joseph, having seen where the contempt of their heart will actually lead them, which is to destroy their own brother. So Joseph is being made new through his suffering. The brothers are being made new by being given over to their act of violence and in the entire story, there's a ridiculous notion of God's providence, right? Did you notice this? Well, we skipped a portion, but this is how uh, the story plays out. Jacob has to send Joseph. Now, he sends Joseph to Dothan, where the brothers are supposed to be shepherding, but the, or to Shechem, sorry. But the brothers have moved on from Shechem. Now, a person just happened to overhear them saying that they were going on to Dothan. The same person happens to bump into Joseph in Shechem and says, Hey, are you looking for something? Joseph says, Yes, I'm looking for my brothers. And he says, Oh, I happen to overhear them. They went down to Dothan. And then Joseph comes down to Dothan. Right? They're going to kill him, but then Reuben has to speak up to preserve his life. He's thrown into the pit and probably would have expired there. The brothers would have left him there. Right? Unless the traders had come along and they decided, oh, we can actually profit from this. A ridiculous series of events occurred to get Joseph from Jacob's side to Egypt. It's the providence of God in making both Joseph and the brothers new, all in preparation uh, to save the world. Do you believe that your suffering is redemptive? In the midst of your suffering, it's so easy to decide that God is not good, that he is not loving, and therefore you do one of two things. You say, I will take the situation in my own hands and I will try to achieve the future that I have for myself, or I will simply turn to sin out of contempt for God and out of a desire to escape. It's in the midst of those two, those two options being before you that the story of Joseph invites you to say, could it be that even the most evil act, even this despicable ferocity of his brothers, could be good from God's perspective. In the same way that a nap is ridiculous to the perspective of a seven-year-old, but his blessing and goodness to an adult, could it be that God is working out something that is far more beautiful and important and good for you than you can see in the given moment? even in the midst of terrible suffering. This is, of course, right, an echo. An echo that brings us to the Lord's table this morning. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold for silver. He's thrown into the pit to die. And so Jesus comes to his brothers and is betrayed. He's sold for silver, and he is left to die. But it's in Jesus' redemptive grace here at this table, in his death and resurrection, that we are reminded that suffering is redemptive and that God has entered our suffering and he makes all things new. And as Joseph was made new and his brothers were made new, 
So you will be made new if you trust in that grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mysterious and wonderful grace, for your providence, the works in ways that we cannot possibly fathom and that affects change in our own hearts and in the world that we cannot understand. But what joy and comfort it is to be on the side of that grace. Would you forgive us for the ways in which we would forge our own futures? And would you forgive us for the ways in which we turn to sin to find comfort? Instead, would you help us to trust? Would you help us to believe that even if you throw us into a pit, it may be to raise us up? Because even as we celebrate the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know that you permitted him to be thrown into a pit that we might be raised up. And for that, we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.